0: Tom, I placed a couple of sheets of paper on that uh, thing there for you that will be exhibits. Okay. And I'll, Got it. for starting, ask you if you will state your full name for the record and then spell for the record your first and last name.
1: Okay. Thomas James Morazzo, T H O M A S M A R A Z Z O.
0: And Mr. Morazzo, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth today? I do. Now, my understanding is is that you were a combat engineer for the Canadian Armed Forces for 25 years.
1: I was. Uh, I started off in the reserves in high school. I was infantry, and then after I graduated college in 90, uh, I joined the regular force in 1998 as a combat engineer officer until uh, 2015. And
0: then uh, you have a bachelor's degree. Um, Basically, it's software, that's yes. what it's called. But yes. And then you went on and got a Master of Business Administration. Yes. And when COVID-19 appeared on the scene, you were a teacher at uh, Georgian College in Barrio, Ontario. Yes. Now, <clears throat> what happened as COVID came <laughs> along in 2020?
1: Um, the world lost its mind and its... Ability to do basic critical thinking um, so You know I I kind of was keeping an eye on this from afar. I knew something was up I was watching what was happening in China and around the rest of the world and I was closely listening to the the way the media was presenting it um, so I think immediately I was skeptical of what the public was being told and um, you know, when the media says, look left, I always look right uh, because in my experience, they really just can't be trusted. And so I was teaching in class full time for about six months. And then six months into it, we uh, COVID hit and the first lockdown happened. And so we had to transition to online learning for the. I was teaching online for the next 18 months. But I could see that there was this, uh, with the other post-secondary, so Western University implemented a vaccine passport, uh, and then Seneca College implemented a, a passport as well. And so you were seeing these stories of students all over the place. Um, they weren't even allowed to register for online learning if they didn't get the vaccine. So there was a lot of, um, my entire time with, with COVID, I nothing made sense, nothing at all. In terms of what the media narrative was, they were scaring the crap out of the public uh, at every possible opportunity. And they were always talking about case count, case count. And it's like, so what? Case count is a meaningless number. It's just meant to fill people with fear. And for me, it just didn't seem to have an effect other than I was baffled by the uh, the. Illogical aspect, you know, it was meant the case count numbers were only meant to scare the public Right
0: now Eventually because you kind of intimated you saw something coming. So uh, Eventually a vaccine mandate was imposed am I right? Yes. So tell us uh, Tell us how that came about and how you responded to that
1: well, I had been sent a text from one of the coordinators of the programs that I was teaching in, and he said, you know, Seneca just implemented a passport. Uh, and when Seneca College does it, usually the other colleges follow suit. Uh, and I had been stockpiling as much money as I could, knowing that I was probably going to be affected by this. And so students registered for school. And then just before school started, the president put out an email um, basically threatening people with very strong, aggressive language saying, you know, that if you didn't get this vaccine, you were no longer employed. And so, uh, at the time I was a member of an organization called police on guard and I was eligible because I was retired military, but, uh, there had been some of the police officers, uh, that were retired, were in the group that were actually sharing a lot of, um, a lot of the, the, the case law, and uh, putting together some really helpful documents. So I went in, I researched it, and when the president sent out the email threatening everybody's employment, um, I basically did you know a reply all. So I copied the president, the vice president, the uh, VP of HR, all the deans that I personally knew, and as many faculty as I could find. And
0: this this actually ran into the hundreds, didn't it? Oh,
1: it was, yeah, it was a couple hundred for now, sure. Now,
0: um, so, I apologize to the audience. I can't draw this uh, this document up because of the format I copied it in. But the commissioners, I've given you two pages. And the first one is Mr. Morazzo's uh, response, which is exhibit TO-17 in these proceedings. And, and Mr. Morazzo, you have a copy That is the email that you
1: you sent in response. Yes. And so, you know, my intention was to basically say, how is it exactly that you believe you're going to get around all of this law, all of these specific laws? And um, there was no response right away. But then one faculty member just replied and hit a reply all and said, Please take me well, off your now, distribution list
0: if, okay, so so you send this email, and mm. one person replies
1: first, yes,
0: saying, please take me off the email
1: yes, take and, me off your distribution list, yes
0: and this was a reply all wasn't it yes, okay, so what what happened after the first
1: so then cr- shortly after another faculty same thing, please take me off your distribution list, please take me off, and so after about the 10th, one of the other faculty said, uh, as much as I'd love to, you know, see you guys, um, read all your comments, could you just hit reply? So I don't have to spend all day long deleting all of your emails.
0: And, And this was an email sent as you say to several hundred
1: people. Yes, several hundred. So, um, one of the faculty responded to him and said, no, I think we should stand together in unity against this guy. And um, with then immediately after, they all jumped on board, including the dean of the faculty I worked in, the coordinator, some of my other colleagues that I had worked closely with uh, teaching. They Every five to ten seconds, I was getting another email. Please take me off your distribution. Please take me off your distribution. So I after a while, I just stopped looking at it uh, because I was getting these things coming in every you know, five to 10 seconds was so, another person.
0: So basically what this was is because you were taking a stand mm-hmm. and basically questioning the legality of the vaccine mandate, all of the people in this email chain made a point of publicly shaming you. Yes. How yep. did that make you feel?
1: Um, I was kind of... At first, it didn't bother me too much, but then I was, started, I, I was actually quite shocked um, because these are the types of people that like to profess that they, they teach their, their students critical thinking. But yet, I outlined all of this legislation in front of them, and it didn't seem like any of them actually had the ability to exercise critical thinking. And so I was, I was embarrassed, actually. I was embarrassed for them. And I know that sounds maybe a little bit arrogant on my part where, you know, I'm the lone person criticizing the vast majority of the, the faculty, but uh, I kind of laid it all out for them. All they had to do was take a look at it. And instead what they did is they went with groupthink and their own fear, and they just started piling on, one person who's standing alone, who is who is waving a warning sign for them, they didn't care. They were just trying to virtue signal to the dean that they were on board with this stuff.
0: No, but personally, how did it make you feel? So you felt embarrassed for them, basically, in, in having to do this virtue, virtue yeah. signaling. But how did it make you feel that basically, you know, one after another was participating in an act designed to shame you publicly?
1: I think I, I transitioned very quickly to surprise, to shock. I was a little bit angry that uh, not one of them had the courage to actually back me up. Like There was, a, there was a, a couple of them that sent me private emails saying, hey, I understand, good, but they weren't going to come forward. They weren't going to stick their neck out. They were perfectly happy to see me stick my head out. So I was, I, to be honest, I, I started to get quite angry about it. That uh, I wasn't getting any support from any of them. I mean, just the law of at large numbers. I should have got somebody doing a reply all and saying, "Wait a minute, maybe this guy's got a point. Maybe we should be discussing this." And nothing.
0: And so let's just put this into context. I mean, we're basically talking about faculty members mm-hmm. at a university. Is that right? Yes. So these Our, will be a college. Yeah, okay, a college. But these will be people with master's degrees and PhDs that have been taught to think critically. Mm-hmm. And they are your colleagues. Yes. You're one of them. And some of them will be your friends. Mm-hmm. Did any single one of them stand up publicly for you? No, not one. <clears throat> now, Getting back then, so you send this email, and you're publicly shamed. How did Georgian College respond to your email?
1: So I was summoned to a virtual meeting. Uh, I, first off, I was ordered to remove the email um, by the VP of HR. Um, but I didn't see his email till later on, and didn't matter anyway because he had directed the IT department to take down my email. And um, so then I was summoned to a meeting on the Friday. This is the first week of school, so by the first Friday. classes already started. And um, that Friday I was summoned to a meeting, asked some questions, and then told that I would have to come back to another meeting Monday morning. Monday morning, uh, I believe 8 or 9 AM, first thing in the morning. And uh, the union rep was there. The union president was actually on the call but you'd never know it because he didn't say a word. And uh, I was informed that I was being fired for cause. So I was fired and uh, I haven't had a job since that time.
0: Now, uh, David, can I have you? I've got on this computer a copy of that termination letter. If you can pull that up in the screen for the online audience to see. And commissioners, you have a paper copy in front of you. So Mr. Morazzo, So you've sent an email, and my understanding is, and I'm just reading from the the second paragraph, your actions are in violation of the college's employee code of conduct, the appropriate use of email, and anti-spam compliance policy, and the information technology acceptable use procedure. Mm -hmm. So you didn't have a student or anyone complain about your behavior.
1: No, all all my teaching ratings were really high.
0: So basically you were getting fired for by your email basically stating that there are other laws and things like that should be that should be considered before a mandate is imposed. Yes. Now I want to segue into another topic because you found yourself involved in the truckers convoy. Yes. Can you tell us how how you became involved and what your role was?
1: Um I was following it just like everybody else on social media and um, through a friend of a friend basically I ended up on a phone call with a guy named James Botter who's with Canada Unity and the intention of that call was I I thought was just to give some advice because as a former military um, this was quite a normal you know this would have been easy for anybody uh, with some experience in the military. And so I had taken the call with the expectation that I would just give some advice, and within 15 minutes of that call, uh, James had just said, "Can you, would you mind just coming to Ottawa?" Because I was only uh, in the Kingston area, so for me to go to Ottawa was maybe a two-hour drive. So within three hours of that phone call, uh, I found myself in Ottawa, and I walked into this conference room with a whole bunch of truckers, the a couple of Ottawa police and uh, next thing you know i was there for 22 days
0: and that was to the very end to the the, very end yes and my understanding is is that you became a spokesperson for the truckers convoy
1: yeah on, on occasion i i didn't do too much of the um the the public stuff and it was never my intention that just kind of as i the longer i stayed at the convoy the more my role started to evolve
0: now, you came after a couple of days, so my understanding is, is that that trucker's convoy lasted for 24 days in Ottawa. Yes. And you were there for 22 days.
1: Yes. I, can, yeah, two days after is when I arrived.
0: Can you share with us, because um, some of us weren't there, and, and I don't think we appreciate the size, the number of Canadians that got involved. Um, can you share with us basically the size, including on weekends?
1: Well, the weekends was the big swell. That is when the general public that were not working during the week would come and bring their families, bring their kids, uh, and participate in the activities there in Ottawa. It was like Canada Day. Every weekend was like Canada Day. And, you know, at one point I would estimate that there was probably 100,000 people that showed up on one of the weekends. We had a stage uh, sound system, and people were giving speeches. There was lots of activities. So... The influx on the weekends was much greater than during the week. But I would think on, on weekends, you were looking at about 100,000 people would come into the uh, down to Wellington. And uh, of course, then there was truckers that, you know, I, finding the exact number of truckers was always a big challenge for everybody. But there was, um, if you just look at some of the video, you could see there's a lot of trucks that showed up to Ottawa.
0: And we're talking thousands. We're, not, we're talking trucks in the thousands. Well,
1: that originally traveled across Canada, yes. Uh, but when they arrived into Ottawa, I would estimate somewhere around 1,000 in the whole Ottawa region because there was trucks that were out at various different locations, not just in the downtown core.
0: Now, <clears throat> being involved, because you were involved with the leadership, and that's how you became a spokesman at times, mm-hmm. what was your understanding of the goal of the truckers convoy?
1: Well, after over two years of all these protests that were going on across the country, everybody who protested was literally being either ignored or arrested for protesting. And so when the mandates came out uh, for the truckers, the truckers took it upon themselves and said, we're ending these federal mandates that is our objective is to go to Ottawa and make them listen because they haven't been for two years so the goal is to end the federal mandates and all of them it was the mask mandates vaccine mandates lockdowns you name it uh, travel restrictions uh, this cross-border issue so for the truckers they they were allowed as unvaccinated to travel into the united states drop their load but when they came back they were required to to quarantine for 14 days so how do you do a cross-border trip and then come back and have to quarantine in your home place yourself under house arrest uh, for 14 days and still expect to make a living so they couldn't do it and uh, it was a significant portion of the actual industry now my understanding is this
0: protest is right on parliament hill i mean it's at the seat of government yes and you're you're telling us they wanted to have a dialogue Mm -hmm. with the federal government um am i correct you basically did a public statement asking the prime minister to speak to you and the truckers yes several times (laughs) and you um am, am i correct that even the ontario provincial police called on the federal government to speak to the truckers
1: yes there was a um, engagement plan that was drafted by the opp and i heard this testimony directly from the person who wrote it Uh, i believe he's an acting inspector marcel Baudouin or bowden um, of the opp he's the liaison team leader uh, for the opp and he had drafted an engagement plan. It was presented to the federal government the day before they invoked the Emergencies Act. So they were briefed and on the 13th of February and the next day they invoked it and completely ignored any form of engagement.
0: Now, I assume, I mean, we've got on weekends 100,000 people on Parliament Hill. We have (coughs) trucks all around Parliament Hill and in other parts of Ottawa. This is going on for... Twenty-four days. I assume, as a spokesperson who actually had been authorized to issue a public statement for dialogue, that all of your time was taking up uh, speaking with the federal government um, to kind of deal with these issues. That would have been great. And you laugh. So tell us, tell
1: us what really happened there. The highest-ranking non-elected person I ever spoke to was Steve Kanalakis. He was the city manager of Ottawa. The uh, and I met with him on two separate occasions, but um, we never met with the mayor. Um, the highest-ranking police officer I ever sat in a room with was an inspector, uh, and he didn't really participate much in in that meeting. But my day-to-day conversations were no higher than the rank of sergeant with the Ottawa Police.
0: Okay, so I, I just want to focus us because this likely is the largest well definitely in my lifetime and likely in your lifetime and the the object is to have a dialogue with with the federal government did a single federal government person speak with you or the truckers
1: the member of parliament the conservative member of parliament for Tamara leach's uh, riding I believe had a conversation with her but they 're not the government they 're just as powerless to to get anything going on with the federal uh, with the liberals uh, the government in power to like there was nothing um, we never met with any of the liberal party um, We were trying to back channel and maybe get some help from the conservatives to to arrange some sort of meeting never happened we never and we expected actually because the liberal government had had a previous history of Engaging with other protests. And again, the OPP testified at the Public Order Emergency Commission that their expectation was that the Liberal government was actually going to reach out and talk to us. And they didn't. There was literally no dialogue between us and the federal government or the Ontario government.
0: And that would be for the full 24 days? The full time. Before the Emergency Act is invoked, not yes. a single dialogue with the federal government.
1: Nothing nothing at all.
0: Um, what is your worst memory? Uh, well, let me just back up. What What was your impression? You were there for 22 days, um, and we've heard that the Prime Minister is basically disparaged. Uh, we've seen, you know, pictures of Nazi flags, um, just a few handful, and a media person spoke to that yesterday. But... Um, What was your observations of how people were behaved and and, um, basically the entire atmosphere and behavior? How would you characterize
1: it? Well, up until the last two days, the 18th and 19th of February, up until those two days, everything really was more of a festival party type of an atmosphere. And people were being very responsible in, uh, you know, for example, we, shoveled the roads we shoveled the sidewalks we collected garbage and occasions we did first aid we always kept safety lanes open despite what any media outlet tells you we worked really hard to make sure that ems was always able to get through any portion and they did and there was testimony of that as well that we actually accomplished that but overall it was a friendly environment and it was, if you ever even talk to some of the people that went there, it's a constant theme that it was such a, uh, a, a truly Canadian experience and it didn't matter over ethnicities, races, religions, creeds, anything. It was ordinary Canadians from east to west that were there being Canadians and they were putting, a, putting their foot down and saying, you know, we're going to be here uh we're going to be nonviolent we're going to be peaceful we're going to try to make the best of a situation because we'll be here for a long time but we're not going to be aggressive we're not going to be violent you know we were even donating food to homeless shelters because we had so much support that we were sharing it within the community um we were not a threat to businesses. We were actually asking for business owners to open up so that we could shop in their businesses. We were trying to support that community. But overall, our intention was never to go and put pressure on the residents of Ottawa. It was just the government. And that's what we were there to do. And, um, you know, it was a very, very peaceful, very fun experience for a lot of people. Very fun.
0: Now... You understood that um, the Emergency Act was invoked. And my understanding is is you um, basically gave a public statement and uh, you had a dialogue with the OPP Mm -hmm. to basically permit, you know, a staged withdrawal without the need for what we all witnessed. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank goodness, because people could live stream.
1: Yeah. So on the 19th, the morning of the 19th, I had a meeting in my hotel with uh, several truckers that were in various leadership positions, and we made the decision to recommend to the truckers to peacefully withdraw from the city. And we chose that language very specific because we wanted to obviously instill the idea that we're still going to be peacefully uh, interacting with the police, despite the day before, where the police were um, exceedingly aggressive in um, the whole situation had been violent. And so even on the second day, we were emphasizing peace. But we were recommending that the convoy withdraw from the city. And on 10, at 10.03 that morning on the 19th of February, I made a call to the OPP. Uh, I was pretty emotional about it because I had just finished watching a lot of the video footage on the news of people getting beaten. Uh, And I was there when uh, Candace was run over by the horse and the other man. I was standing 15 feet away. So I witnessed this violence myself, and I wasn't too happy about the veterans getting beaten by the, uh, the police as well at the National War Memorial. And so I made the call to the OPP, and I said, look, we're recommending that they leave, but you need to move the concrete barriers and allow us to get fuel into the trucks because we were boxed in we couldn't actually move we couldn't leave if we wanted unless people literally walked out of the city so we said you need to move the concrete barriers and you need to let us get fuel into the truck so they can drive out Um, but we were recommending that the drivers the truck owners leave the city and he said yeah i'll pass it up the chain and uh nothing happened no concrete barriers moved and people got uh, were continuously beaten and arrested
0: Okay, so I just, I just want to be perfectly clear. So you, you were personally involved in trying to make arrangements with the police for the truckers to withdraw their trucks from downtown Ottawa. Yes. And this was all done in an effort to forestall unnecessarily unnecessary violence against Canadians that you had witnessed the day before. Yes and there was no answer or no response
1: no i we were starting to see some of the leadership of the convoy get arrested anyway so by that point tamara had already been arrested chris barber had been arrested Uh, i think danny bulford who's retired rcmp was already arrested and in custody at that time and uh, which was why on the last day i was the one who gave the public statement saying we're because i was the last one left um, that the public would recognize and, you know, maybe listen to. Right.
0: Now, you spoke about um, <clears throat> what happened at the, the War Memorial. Mm-hmm. Um, can you describe that? And I'm going to play a video, and there's a person in the video, and I want you to share with us um, your knowledge and relationship with that person. But please explain to us in detail what, who was at the War Memorial, and what occurred
1: so the as the convoy went on more and more canadian military veterans in a lot of cases combat veterans started to arrive in ottawa and they spent time mostly concentrated at the national war memorial because for a time there was a big steel fence around the memorial and the veterans were quite upset about this because it wasn't being cleaned off with snow it was being kind of neglected so I was there as well when the veterans took down the steel fence. The police came in. They they thought that the the monument was kind of, you know, not being taken care of. But as soon as they came in, they saw the veterans. We said, "Look, we're going to put a twenty-four and seven guard on the memorial," and they did. So the veterans for two weeks had a twenty-four and seven vigil on the National War Memorial, protecting it. And that's kind of the ground they they typically stuck to but when on after the emergencies act when the police started to to do their raiding the veterans formed a wall and they linked arms and basically said we're not going to move off this this piece of ground uh they're not going to fight but they linked arms and they were resisting peacefully resisting but one of the individuals uh Chris Deering, is uh, he was a wounded Afghanistan vet. Uh, he was uh, two other of his colleagues were immediately killed. He was blown up in a in a Three IED explosion that sent the vehicle a hundred feet into the air, flipped over. The turret fell out. Chris fell out. He was badly badly injured. Um, luckily not killed. But he was there. He arrived and. Um, one of the veterans told the police that, look, when you come up, this guy here, he's in bad shape. He's a wounded veteran. He's in really bad shape. Well, they rolled through, and at one point, they, uh, they just grabbed Chris right out of the line, right out of the chain, and uh, two of the police started beating him on the ground.
0: So I'm just going to stop you. So Chris is a, <coughs> a war veteran that yes. served this nation in Afghanistan. Yes. And he witnessed... Two of his fellow soldiers are being killed in action, mm-hmm. yes, and he himself was wounded and has problems to this day because of that.
1: He has many physical problems. He's not uh, very employable uh, right now, but uh, you know he's he's not a large person. Um, but he was certainly not a threat to any of the large police officers. And if you show the video, you'll see the difference in and, size.
0: And I will. But before I do, I I saw some other videos, and I saw that Chris was wearing three medals yes. on his jacket that don't show up in this video. So he's a decorated war veteran.
1: Yes. So mm-hmm. I'm
0: just going to play this video, and it's short. I'm going to play it twice because it's so short. But All I just I just want the people of Canada to see how we treat de- decorated war veterans. To be when, clear
1: too, all of the veterans that were there were wearing their berets and their medals. So they were easily recognized as Canadian veterans.
0: And, and the police were told that in any event? They were told. And, and you told us they were told that, that Chris um, actually has some physical issues.
1: Yeah. Specifically, Chris was pointed out. So in this
0: video, Chris <clears throat> is basically the gentleman in the brown jacket being dealt with by the police. Yes. So can I have uh, the screen? Thank you. So what um, what was your experience of the police uh, during those last two days?
1: Very, very mixed. Um, at one point I was there, like I mentioned, I was there on the line when uh, the horse came through and uh, ran over the two people. I remember there was a large group of OPP standing there and... I I walked over and I was looking at them and I I kind of started yelling at them saying thank you thank you you got to be proud of yourself for stealing the future of uh, my kids and your kids too and my they looked at me um they looked at me as if though you know if if I could shoot this guy and get away with it I'd drop him right now that was the impression I got I didn't see people that had any shame in their eyes I saw people that were getting geared up to go in and and beat people. That's what I saw. Um, So I had very mixed emotions because on my one-on-one dealings with specific individual officers, it was very good, not all. And then when we got to that, and what's interesting is none of the police that we were interacting with the previous three weeks were the ones that were on that line. They brought in new people from other jurisdictions. That had no ties, no relationships, hadn't been in Ottawa to come in and and start uh, mass arresting people. And as my final
0: question before I allow commissioners or give commissioners the opportunity to question you is uh, what happened to your bank accounts (laughs) and uh, what was the effect of that?
1: My bank account was frozen along with about approximately 280 Canadians. I was not informed that it would be I was not informed that it was frozen and I was never told when it would be returned to me Um, it was credit cards banks joint accounts um, any financial asset that I had and my ex-wife was notified by her financial institution that they were looking at hers it's recently been disclosed in the media that um, All of our information was shared globally to banks, including China, India, France, UK, Wall Street. Um, All of our bank, all of our personal information was shared and they were told if you're doing banking with these people, uh, cease doing banking with them. Now, to be clear, there was never a warrant for my arrest. I was never charged, I've never been convicted. My son has a, a heart condition and if we didn't have cash, We would not have been able to purchase his heart medication. And so you had to have cash to actually buy this. And they didn't give any consideration to anything like that. Nothing. There was no information that we knew about. Next thing you know, rumors started that bank accounts were frozen. And, you know, I was one of them. And on top of that, now I'm being sued for $400 million uh, for my participation in the convoy.
0: Well, (coughs) welcome to your uh, charter-protected right for freedom of expression and and, uh, freedom to assemble. Mm So um, I'll open it up for the uh, commissioners if they have any questions for you, Mr. Mm Murazzo. Good morning. I just would like to go back for a moment to the faculty union, and I see that in your email that you have have listed a number of legislative pieces. Usually unions stand up for the minority voice to some extent. So I'm just wondering, in this case you said the union member remained silent. Mm-hmm. Did you have any thoughts about that or any follow-up conversations with the union that would suggest that they were silent for a reason or being
1: silenced by the administration? there was nothing offered i was in a pre-meeting uh before all this had happened um there was several people on the call and i remember specifically asking the union president in this call um would they be resent uh represent if if something like this were to occur would they re- represent us as individuals or would they look at it almost like a majority rules kind of a thing And, um, his response was to the negative that, um, he did say, you know, we'll take it as a case by case. Uh, but then he immediately shut me down and told me that that question was inappropriate to, to ask in that, in that meeting. And, um, one of the other people participating, a faculty member asked me a question about my original question and he shot her down And said that's inappropriate for you to talk (coughs) to the other faculty member in this zoom meeting so uh i did go to arbitration after but uh that's a that's a whole other story i did lose the arbitration because i couldn't attend the arbitration Um, but my feeling was that the union um, did i i did threaten to go um what is it df Um, I can't remember the acronym for when you don't feel that the union is actually representing you. I did suggest to them that I was going to do that. I did indicate to the union that I was considering suing the college. They said you can't because of the binding arbitration uh, or sorry, the collective agreement. And I said, well, I'm actually considering going after you guys first so that I can then go after the school. And I did have lawyers that were gearing up to it uh, to do that. But you know I've only got so much bandwidth and uh, I'm pretty exhausted after a year and a half of this Um, so on that particular issue I've walked away but I think there was a few lawyers that really would have liked to pursue that
0: thank you
2: good morning Mr. Morazzo. thank you for coming and telling your story I have a few questions Um, the first is I'm quite familiar with that area in front of Parliament on Wellington Street where the War Memorial is and I'm assuming like in most places in Canada when I look around there are video cameras everywhere even in this hotel when I'm in the in the elevator there's a there's a video camera watching me most of the videos that I have seen that were related to the to the convoy were video shot by individuals with phones or, or whatever. Do you have any idea what, what happened to or where the video from? I'm, I'm, I have no idea how many, but what had to have been hundreds if not thousands of, of security cameras in the area recorded?
1: yeah that was an issue that we had raised right at the beginning uh, when the lawyer or the legal team showed up from the jccf uh, we started to inquire as to why are all of these cct cameras turned off why are they not uh, there's no public access so because some of those cameras uh, all across the country which is really interesting because all across the country there are zones that have cct along the highways and as the the larger portions of the convoy were traveling across canada they were shut off. And so when the convoy actually arrived into the city of Ottawa, all those CCT cameras were no longer uh, streaming for public consumption. So all of those cameras were completely turned off, which was really bizarre to us because we, we were kind of anticipating that in the future we may need to see some of that footage. It's, it was never um, activated, which is bizarre.
2: Um, you also mentioned an incident Uh, with regard to the horses and the trampling of one of the protesters. um, Are you aware of any type of um, investigation that's been carried, independent investigation, has been carried out of the police actions and or their messaging that was going on at that time surrounding that incident?
1: I'm not aware of any investigation into that incident.
2: Are you aware of any other internal or public investigations of the actions of the police um, uh, during the uh, the last two days of the, um, the protest? No, I'm not. One last question concerning your statement about the 280 Canadian bank accounts who were frozen. I'm assuming that you, and this is none of my business, you can tell me that mm. if you wish, but I'm assuming that you are not a you're not using digital currencies and you're using ordinary money and bank accounts and and ordinary uh identification cards uh, yourself like most canadians
1: yes and i'm absolutely against digital id as somebody who has experienced the the current mechanisms to go in and attack people's uh financial assets right now even without digital id so digital id is a step beyond what I, I think every Canadian in this country should be um, outright rejecting the idea of these CBDCs, any form of digital ID, any form of currency like that in that manner. Uh, I think that Canadians should keep an eye on that every single day and get updates on it because um, even under the current system, it, it took nothing for the government without any criminal... Uh, charges to completely remove my ability to access my own financial assets so I carry cash now but like I haven't worked in 18 months so I don't have a lot of it but yeah
2: but the the government didn't act alone I'm assuming that your your bank account wasn't with the government of Canada it was with a private institution I'm assuming that your credit cards weren't with the government of Canada it was a private institution how 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 do you account for the incredible cooperation that was between the banks, the government, the credit card companies, employers, whoever else was involved with that?
1: Well, that's an interesting question because it wasn't just the banks that were ordered to seize the, the accounts. It was also the insurance industry as well as, um, I think, more the equity market like the, the big trading firms. Uh, everybody was ordered to do it. It was the insurance company, the life insurance companies, Uh, and stuff and house insurance and all that that said no we're not doing that so it's interesting because there's this kind of thought that the banks were compelled to do it legally and if they didn't they'd be in breach but the same order was given to the other uh, forms of financial institutions but they pushed back because if you would have frozen or taken away or removed somebody's house insurance then they'd be in default of their mortgage and so they pushed back and said no we're not doing it and it's funny because The bank industry has more money than God. I think they can afford some lawyers to have tied this up for about a week or two until this was settled and not gone after people's bank accounts. But they did it anyway. It's because there's only five chartered banks. Well, no, I guess the credit unions, the credit card companies, they all did it. It was just the two other industries or sectors that didn't do it. But the banks were right on board with it.
2: That's all the questions I have. Thank you very much. So
0: there being uh, no further questions, we'll let you go. Thank you on behalf of the National Citizens Inquirer for testifying, Mr. Massell.